This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Ian, and I will be your guide along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With the gaze turns inward to see real beauty, we will be revisiting makers. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast The Gaze Turns Inward to See Real Beauty, we discuss aspects of Invisible Sun characters. We're going to be taking a dip back in with Makers and the Makers Matrix with a special guest, uh, Mr. Ian Campbell. Uh, welcome to the show, Ian. Uh, it's good to have you here. How are you doing? Thank you. Doing well. So, uh, we we are all here. Um, there was a little bit of a discussion about how we do intros when we have guests on, and it turns out... Uh, Scott and I do not get introduced, but we're still here. Uh, say hello. hello. Yep, there you go. Uh, so, Ian, uh, before we really dive into Makers, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, how did you get involved with Invisible Sun? And uh, what got you so keen on talking about Makers after uh, listening to our discussion that we had a while back? I've been a real big fan of narrative games and moving more in that direction uh, for the past few years. Played uh, quite a bit of Pathfinder and some of the older D&D games. And when Cypher System first came out, I got real attached to the style of narrative game that it uh, allows and, and promotes. Mm-hmm. Invisible Sun seems like a very high quality evolution of that play space. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. It is it is more along those lines of you know narrative that Cipher really sort of brought out, especially at at our tables. Um, so what specifically about uh, makers are are we looking at talking about? Uh, well, the first time I looked at the Maker's Matrix. Mm-hmm. Is this like playtest or post-playtest? Post post-playtest. I was not involved in any of the playtesting. Okay. Uh, so my first experience was opening the uh, Black Cube for real. Um, I had also been watching the A Woman with Hollow Eyes mm-hmm. uh, live play. And the Maker there verbalized some uh, things about the maker that he didn't particularly appreciate. Uh, Or maybe that he appreciated changing his character away from that. Uh, Yeah, didn't he... uh, I haven't watched all of A Woman with Hollow Eyes. um, And he had made a few things. That character goes through some strong changes. He doesn't make too much. He doesn't make too much beyond what he sort of starts the game with. Okay. So what what shied him away from really diving into the order of makers? I think some of the 
costs inherent in uh, being a maker or some of the limitations um, can be highly variable. They can uh, be very punishing if um, the game sort of settles into a... uh, If the game patterns allow it to be, then they Mm -hmm. can be very punishing for the maker who may allocate all of his resources to pursue other parts of his character. Um, But I don't think that they have to be punishing for makers. That is, um, and we'll go over some of the, what I see as natural maker limitations. Not that Mm -hmm. the other orders don't have limitations. The makers just have plenty of limitations built in. I think um, one of the limitations that my, the maker at my table is, I want to say, wrestling with, is if things don't work and what you're trying to make falls apart, then you kind of don't have your tools available to you when you need to use them. It's like everybody else has magic and they can use it. But as a maker, if you try to build something and you fail, you don't have access to your magic then. is Does that make sense? Yes. Um, in our latest session, our maker was on a journey with um, one other character and ran into an issue where they wanted a fairly simple effect by level Mm -hmm. and couldn't achieve it in anything less than four days. (laughs) Uh, Whereas a goetic advance, advance would be, would, would be hard pressed to generate any random level of effect but a weaver and a a goetic could just sort of pick or maybe a an apostate uh saves a crux in reserve to pick up a spell on the spot Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of there's a lot more planning with the maker than there is with the vance which i thought was very interesting after we really started getting into it I think the environment of uh, the uh, broadcast uh, nature, like of Twitch and streaming, influences this a bit as well uh, in a way that, that overlaps with the uh, uh, the Gen Con uh, demo game. In the Gen Con demo game, the uh, makers at the table didn't really have an opportunity to make anything uh, and were distinguished by ha- starting the game with their uh, uh, device, not to spoil anything about those characters. And I think the reluctance of the maker to use the matrix in the streams may be a product in part of how it's not as cinematic as some of the other spellcasting methods, because you sort it's usually reserved for develop mode. And even then it is a lot of die rolling and a lot of table consulting, uh, which doesn't shine uh, on Twitch <laughs> as other things may. Uh, so I, I could see how just the, the nature of that medium may, uh, kind of incentivize people to de-emphasize makers or at least their uh, use of the maker's matrix. I think the Monty Cook, a Raven wants what you have handled that portion of it quite well. They hashed out the mechanical aspects of the maker off screen. And then they would simply sum up as in, as if in a, um, 
montage. I think that would, that would be a good compromise. Yeah, the the way that we've been doing it at my table, um, just so that we can walk through the process, is we've taken you know the first 10, 15 minutes of a session while everybody's still sort of getting their things together. We've taken that time uh, to walk through the maker's matrix and build something out. And the maker, she did just make something to get her up to the second degree. Um, so I was much less interested in like, what is the magical effect of this thing? And much more interested in going through that process again and saying like, what do we do for the first level? What do we do once we get to the level that we're you know, trying to achieve and what happens after that? And what are the roles and what can we spend on? And that's kind of how we've been doing it. And I think once we do that a few more times, then, you know, the maker might, she might be doing some stuff, you know, in between sessions when people start making requests for things, uh, which will be interesting. Um, so are there any other uh, concerns that come up for players that, that we want to touch on here? I think the players have two main concerns. Okay. The first is that mishaps are very easy and the consequences are very bad. And the second is it can be very expensive. But with incomes, expensive heavily depends on what speed your game is going at. If if you're <laughs> if one session represents a month of playtime, the expense doesn't hit them very hard. If none of the other players use any of their money and they all hand it to the maker, the expense doesn't hit them very hard. Yeah, and that is one thing that we're seeing. Um, in the past two sessions, we've skipped ahead about two weeks of time, uh, which is a very different experience than any of the other campaigns that we've run. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because, hey, a month has transpired and, you know, the characters are changing in small ways at this point. I mean, they've made some significant milestones, but, you know, their characters are still being figured out. And during that time, that's four weeks of income that the maker is getting. So she's kind of all set to make a whole bunch of stuff. So, yeah, the expenses, I feel like we've mitigated that at the table. But the the mishaps, those are definitely like at the forefront of the maker's mind whenever we go through that matrix. Another thing I'm interested in is various house rules to sort of tune the experience um, mm -hmm. to match player expectations. And I've opened up the possibility at my table of um, the maker going through character arcs to raise their income level maybe faster or at a better rate than other characters. What have your character arcs to do so been like? Because I think I've done something like that as well. Right. So um, the low the low level early ones would be making individual things for like maybe commissions for mm -hmm. various figures around the city. Um, whereas later it would be like... <laughs> making little von Neumann machines, something that makes, make a machine that makes other machines or make a machine that, that makes devices. And that's, so that's one way to get around another way to get around the expense, like constraint. 
or concern, I think we were saying. Uh, and yeah, my maker is doing the same thing. Like she's, she is building, she's making small pieces of jewelry for various people that she's taking commissions from. And it's at this point, it's not a lot of extra cash, but it's enough that I'm hoping it makes her feel more comfortable with spending her resources to build more, more things. And trying to sync up the timeline between makers and non-maker player characters is also an opportunity to emphasize elements of the game that sometimes are forgotten, or at least in, in my uh, in my experience, are forgotten. Like developing more hidden knowledge and the other sorts of downtime activities that other uh, orders uh, may take advantage of to generate other sorts of resources. Uh, my players often forgot basically that they, you know, to use their uh, downtime to do research. Uh, we didn't have advance, but advance could be researching spells, uh, but definitely the hidden knowledge mechanic that uses the uh, schedule, uh, pr you know, pretty closely uh, would be an opportunity for the other players to have something to do when you do take two week breaks. Yeah. I'm going to have to remember that one. Um. So coming back to the mishaps, um, is there, like, what can we do to, I guess, sort of massage those mishaps so they don't feel like such a uh, an obstacle? Or is that just something that comes with being a maker? So the mishaps are heavily influenced by one singular role, the uh, application of a power source. And why is that one so significant compared to the other roles that you're making? The other roles require three consecutive failures um, in order to actually mishap. Now, bad things will happen. Small, small and medium quirks will build up in materials. Mm -hmm. um, but the only one that is a single shot pass or fail is that final adding a power source. And it, if on a failure, it goes straight to mishap. Uh, and just so that we're clear on the definition of what a mishap is in the case of the Maker's Matrix, what, is, what does that mean? Like quirks and, and things like that, it doesn't sound like those will prevent the process from ultimately getting you an item that you can use, but it sounds like a mishap is much worse than that. Yes. Adding ingredients as you level up the base item to the, to the target level, uh, the first failure will generate a minor side effect, which doesn't seem to have much mechanical effect. Mm -hmm. So this would be the side effect of like, I'm building a knife and now it smells like tacos. <laughs> Always smells like tacos. Yes. Um, side effect. That sounds like the goal. Yeah, but if you're trying to be a sneaky assassin, it doesn't help if you smell like tacos. It's a it's a dessert knife. <laughs> um, so minor side effects, and then what is it? Major side effects. Yeah, the second one is major side effects, which um, can be fairly impactful. Like if you're if the sword that you're trying to make is doing one damage per level of the item to you each time it's used, it's not a very useful sword, but mm -hmm. if you can't use it for an hour a day, that seems fine. Just don't fight during that hour. Okay. And then, um, yeah, go ahead. On the third failure, or if you fail to put the power source in, 
instead of creating the item, it seems like the item is destroyed and a mishap occurs. Mishaps do anything from killing your loved ones to uh, cursing the maker, uh, becoming blind for a week. Fairly impactful. They're on the order of magnitude of like not a minor flux, but a major flux, like two zeros on the magic dice. It seems like they're on the, it seems like it matches up to uh, the grand flux, three zeros. Oh. Yeah, Yeah, that's more than even the twos. Yeah, that's a big drawback. Um, okay, so mishaps and expenses, those are the big concerns that I think that all of the makers we've run into seem to have in common. Um, you know, money can be modified in various ways. Uh, like what do, what do we want to talk about as, in terms of natural limitations for makers and like how we can work through this process? Makers come with uh, several tools to help them pass those roles as well, though. Okay. Um, So I think a committed maker can fairly quickly guarantee that he's passing all of his roles, maybe except that maximum level power source, which he just applies a single hidden knowledge to bump it up that last point that it needs to be. Mm Mm-hmm. So spending Ben A, having skills, and then dropping some hidden knowledge in. That should be able to get you over the line. Right. Okay. Makers makers have an inbuilt ability to make uh, simple tools, which act as a plus one, um, into more magical tools by applying uh, a mage coin per level's worth of materials to it. And that ability increases as the maker levels up. Um, so are magical tools available to a first degree maker or is that something for a higher degree? No, it opens up at at second level. Okay. And once you have magical tools, those are adding what plus one to the, the roles that you're making or more? Uh, well, simple tools would add one. Okay. And then at level two, your level two tools would add two. At level three, you can have level three tools, and then you skip a level, and at level five, you can have level four tools. Okay, cool. Yeah, that that sounds like those would be extremely helpful. Um, so the the resources at their disposal, just going over these again, we've got uh, Bene that they can spend from, uh, and then their skills and tools and hidden knowledge. Is there anything else that I'm not thinking of? At level six, the item level of the crafted material disappears. So you can craft any level of item. Uh, Makers can get benefits from other sources. So they could take a forte that boosts this ability. They could have a weaver friend who gives them an ongoing bonus to crafting. Mm -hmm. Um, There's plenty of bonuses 
outside of the four that you mentioned available to higher level characters. Now, when you say at level six, do you mean like a sixth degree maker doesn't need to worry uh, yes. about material? Uh, a level six degree maker can bring many forces to bear against okay. their crafting <clears throat> challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. So with all that stuff, I mean, it, it sounds like you'd be able to, with a bit of work and you know, a bit of time, it sounds like you'd be able to put together a whole bunch of tools to help you just auto succeed making items at various levels. Like as a first degree maker, you can make level four stuff. And I'm pretty sure my maker without even having simple tools as part of her repertoire, if she were to spend hidden knowledge, I think she just auto succeeds at the end. So that's that is very likely, yes. And that just sort of hold, holds true uh, as you advance and start making like level six and then level eight stuff. As long as you maintain uh, all of these uh, assets or okay. all of the all of the bonuses, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to really dig into that stuff and. Uh, point the maker in the direction of getting some of those bonuses and tools set up so that she can just walk through that system uh, and hopefully only have a very small role for the power source at the end until she has more stuff uh, at her disposal. There are two more tools that are suggested as optional rules okay. in um, the way. And for our readers at home, I'm looking around page... 60. And that is to preemptively introduce a minor side effect or a major side effect. So by designing in a quirk, the, the maximum level of the item stays the same, but the level of the challenges can be reduced by one or two. And that can get these early makers um, back, uh, excuse me, back to the point where they're, they're not rolling dice okay. to finish their item. Yeah. And once again, like that minor quirk is something that's, uh, it doesn't really have a mechanical impact so much as it's a story thing that Perhaps it's something that the GM, if they're feeling creative and they need to throw some despair at somebody, they might be able to tug on those strings. But the uh, reducing it by two, that's when you're thinking about putting something in that makes the item a bit more difficult to use. Right. So this would be the item that um, you need in a very particular circumstance instead of just being able to pull it out anytime. You don't want your say your armor to only work at night. Right. Uh, that sounds like it would be a major, major problem. Um, so it seems like the advice that you would give to a maker is identify the, the tools you have at your disposal and use them to your advantage. Uh, but then there are also these things called maker troves that, we talked about a little bit off air and what, what's going on with those? 
Maker's Troves it fascinates me as an idea. Um, the way Monty is written in the book, it is a collection of items that can be run across while adventuring that as long as the maker wants to make something unique, a, a new idea that they've not had before, they automatically pass any challenge role related. And that seems like a fantastic place for makers who want to make stuff out of the things they discover while adventuring. Um, but there, the restriction around the trove is that it has to build something that makes sense with the materials they've found. Uh, that's a suggestion. Okay. The most heavy suggestion in the book is that it needs to do something that they haven't ever done before. Ah, that, that old cipher ability. <laughs> now, I'm very interested in some other ways to implement troves. Like you said, some items seem like they would uh, lend themselves to certain applications. Mm -hmm. So I'm tempted to use the maker's troves as, as long as you can convince me it applies to the particular item you're crafting out of it, it acts as a trove. It auto-succeeds your challenge rolls. But it is in itself a level whatever material mm -hmm. and could be used in just anything you want, anything else you want to craft with. Um, so that's a way to both reduce the costs to the maker because obviously they're finding stuff as they... Uh, go through and discover things, mm -hmm. but also a way to mitigate those mishaps because if they find things that particularly line up with what they want to craft, they're avoiding those challenge rolls that could fail. I feel like we need to have all of these uh, ideas and suggestions written up so that we can just include it in the post because um, I'm going to want to come back to it and, and you know refresh my mind when I'm actually, you know, trying to retain it. <laughs> There's a lot of knobs to tweak in the makers. Yeah. Uh, so as far as knobs to tweak, um, are there any other uh, parts of the maker process that we want to like go over and talk about? There are a few ephemera that makers can make special use of. Mm-hmm. One of them increases the item level. One of them maybe increases the range or I forget something. So, there's there's a couple of level three items. Now, increasing the item level or the range, are these like ephemera objects that permanently modify an item or are they just like a, a duration that will wear off? They are a duration that would wear off. Okay. But if they're applied by a maker, that item lose the ephemera item loses its duration. For the increase a level of an item, that is a permanent change. Okay. But there's a very interesting item called a terracomb. Uh, my players don't listen to this, so like, yeah, this is great. 
<laughs> they they won't find out about this thing. It's a level five ephemera that uh, essentially doesn't expend the item the first time that depletion roll is rolled. And when a maker applies it, then it uh, the Terracom itself doesn't deplete. Otherwise, it would deplete on a zero, 10% chance each day. So it gives you... So the Terracom doesn't deplete, but uh, exactly what does the Terracom do again? It prevents it, the item it's modifying from depleting the first time it would? Yes. Okay. So the makers have um, a sort of heavy-handed uh, modification to the level of the item um, based on the duration. Yeah. Sorry, not duration. The depletion. Yeah, uh, depletion, yes. If an item has a 50% depletion per use, it gets created at uh, sort of on level. Mm -hmm. So you've got a level 3 effect. Um, then you make a level 3 item that depletes half the time. With a Terracom, it would have to deplete twice. Uh, which is, those odds are a little bit better. <laughs> it does. It extends. And there's several ways the, the storyteller can take that. Um, a Terracom probably costs about a gem orb to create from scratch mm -hmm. and eight days. So they could, or level five, 10 days. Ten days yeah. So a week and a half. Um, so a maker might be able to create several of these Terracom and reapply it to the item each time they successfully roll or <laughs> they fail to make their depletion roll. And keep one object of power going indefinitely. Objects of power would then sort of eat Terracom at specified rates because the underlying level of depletion would come into effect there. Uh, so are your... You've got a maker? Is, I do have a maker. Is your maker using the Terracom to make items cheaper and not have to worry about them depleting as quickly? They have so far found one Terracom, and he has not made any more. Okay. But making a Terracom is something that could totally happen. It's just a level 5 item. Like, you could look at the ephemera objects as blueprints for th things you could make. Right. If you, if you backwards calculate, and I'm not sure how much of that is supposed to happen, then the effect that the Terracom is applying is a one-time use level six effect. Mm -hmm. Well, that implies that there is a uh, zero depletion level 10 item that would do the same thing. <laughs> I think once you can start reasonably making level 10 items... I mean, you're going to be pretty high level at that point, and that might be okay. <laughs> level 10 is max level maker, correct? Yeah. Um, 
level 10 is max level? They don't just get unbounded once they get to like 6th degree? No, 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 sorry. Uh, level 5 makers can only make level 9 items. Mm-hmm. So you ha- you would have to be a level 6 maker to make a, a level 10 item. It is unbounded. Okay. That, that's what I was thinking. I could not recall. Um, so is there anything else you want to touch on about the, the maker's matrix that, uh, you think would be useful to, to cover? Um, one more. Yes. And this sort of ties into the Terracom discussion. Mm-hmm. And that is instead of applying new Terracom to items before they deplete, um, finding additional power sources and recharging objects of power that the maker is especially interested in that once they do deplete. Oh, so you're saying just skip the whole like ingredient additions and jump right to that final, uh, that final check. Right. Okay. Now I've got several reasons for this being interesting. The first is avoiding the repetitive, uh, costs. If the maker is interested in making the exact same thing, mm-hmm. uh, the next is all of the lower level challenges should be auto passing and that power source application is the risky one. Right. Yeah. So I guess mishapping when you're trying to recharge something would still be, uh... would still, uh, so if you have overall a 32% chance of mishapping, on making any particular object, cutting out all of the previous roles and just doing the power source role brings that to 30% chance. You're only saving yourself 2% chance by avoiding all the previous roles. Yeah. So the the real drama is still happening right at the end. The, the real drama is still there. Yes. Um... So one thing I found uh, doing the Maker's Matrix is that it is kind of a fun creative exercise to walk through the steps of adding the ingredients and sourcing the table for like justifications for why you would use this level one ingredient for this item. And then why would you use this like strange level two ingredient? It's like this honey from sentient sapient bees. Um, Like, how is this helping to craft this item? Like I found that to be a very kind of entertaining process. Um, and I, I kind of want to keep that around for the items that the maker is going to be building for other people. Are there other ways that you might be able to, that you've thought about for changing up, you know, how those early checks are done? So if my, Maker wants to make some sort of metal object of power. She's got metalworking. She's going to go through and just say, I have metalworking at level two. So I just reduce all this by two and we get to the power source and I make this roll and now it's done. Like, yes. How do you, do you have any so, ideas about how to make that a little bit more uh, dynamic? If, if nobody could tell by now, I'm a little bit of a math nerd and I've been through uh, several iterations of, uh, the percent chance of mishap at each step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw the the grid and I said, "Yeah, yeah, that's math. That's that's math." 
I think a very interesting thing that storytellers could do is require different craft roles uh, per material that is being added to the item. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that the base material is metal, so your metal crafter easily makes it. Um, What if this particular ingredient that they're adding is a leather binding on the handle? That introduces a significant risk if the maker is not experienced with, not skilled at, or has the tools for uh, leather working. And but I, I like the drama being added in at these steps because failure here isn't just failure. This is where you introduce those quirks and drawbacks. Yes, and your maker could save all of her stabilizers to be metal bands that wrap around uh, the handle. Okay. So um, she has a few attempts to successfully craft this item, but if it gets down to it, she says, nope, back home, metalworking it is. Yeah, stabilize it with metal so you can get back to use the ingredients that you've put together for it. So that's cool. I, I like that idea. That's an interesting one. It sounds like a lot of the uh, challenge of uh, makers is sort of how you design your character and whether you design a risk-averse maker that is trying to make sure that they can completely nail all of the simple roles and then just be conservative in what they build, uh, or a uh, kind of ostentatious or uh, you know risk-seeking maker who's who's uh, striving to, to make some sort of very high level item uh, and you'd have to choose different secrets uh, and invest in different skills uh, and breadth versus depth of those skills, depending upon uh, how you want to address the risks of mishap and, and the like, which I, I think is working as intended. Yeah. And I think it also requires the, you know, the GM and the maker to be on the same page when it comes to how's this making process going to work? Are we going to, change up, you know, what skills are going to be required based on the ingredients you're putting in rather than just the material. Yes. So I think that comes back heavily to something I've been thinking about, which is player expectations. Mm -hmm. So if a player comes to the table with the expectation of, I am a good crafter, I should be able to make anything I want to. And invests heavily in in these making skills, buys their tools, um, increases their ability to spend benet, and at the same time, the storyteller is thinking, "No, I want I want there to be some roles, some risk." Then those expectations don't match, and if the storyteller enforces uh, risks, the player is going to be having less fun. Because they want to make something interesting, not risk their lives doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, player expectations. That's a whole discussion for, I guess, any podcast talking about any role-playing game. Yes. <laughs> and, and it manifests in different ways with different orders. Uh, you have, we mentioned you know, with weavers that... Uh, it's always a negotiation. And with uh, with Goetics, in some sense, you're always negotiating uh, the nature of what you're summoning and whether it's a repeat summoning. And there's, there's a lot that you have to uh, reach agreement on between the GM and the player uh, over character capabilities. 
and, and that's the, the case here too. But I think it, it's it, I think you raise an excellent point that establishing what reasonable expectations are for what the making process will be like, uh, and allowing the player to make choices about character design and investment of resources like acumen and skills and, and the like uh, around uh, a shared expectation is very important because uh, the the you really get a lot more conflict when players have one idea and they build their character to uh, kind of uh, lean towards one type of making experience. Uh, but if that doesn't match with what the GM then provides, uh, I think that that sort of mismatched expectations is, is where you get a lot of, of conflict at the table. So um, I think we're going to be wrapping up our discussion about, uh, well, we're wrapping up the revisitation of makers here. Uh, are there any uh, other uh, closing thoughts before we, you know, end the segment? I had an idea for how to uh, maybe negotiate some of those expectations uh, in a, a kind of a <laughs> narratively safe space. Um, you could do an intro scene, maybe in development mode, um, of the uh, beginning maker, uh, maybe as part of their initiation into their first level of the order uh, of makers, uh, where you actually play the maker's uh, kind of mentor mm-hmm. making something. And so you're not spending character resources, but instead you're walking through the process. And I envision it sort of like the the uh, the forging of the sword at the beginning of Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this whole process as sort of a prelude to the story that's being told. Um, but it's also becomes a safe place to negotiate what making is like mm-hmm. because the player is not risking their own resources. Uh, and can provide feedback on what that experience will will be like when it is sort of their turn to make what they want with their own resources. That might be a kind of a way to uh, to start the negotiation without both parties having to sort of blindly uh, begin the process uh, and kind of and hope that they're in in, in sync with uh, the other party. It's a good thought. I, I like it. I I don't know. I, I might be actually be able to use that. Uh, we've only put together two things and, you know, we, we still have a lot of room to figure out what we're trying to achieve, uh, you know, story-wise when it comes to building stuff. So, Ian, thank you for joining us here on the show. It was uh, really great having you on and talking to you about all this stuff about makers. You have thought way more about makers than I have. Uh, thank you all so much. Yeah, it was it was a pleasure. So, yeah, thank you for taking the time. It's a very graphic process with the Maker's Matrix, and I think there's room for some uh, good videos to be made stepping through it. Uh, But this has been a really good discussion. Thank you guys for having me on. Sure thing. Uh, And Ian, do you want to plug anything if people want to find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at 2VoidSoul, but that's really the only place I can be found. Cool. Uh, well, if you don't want to be found, uh, just let us know and we'll just clip it. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive Through RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. 
You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us. <laughs>